Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Michael Rosenberg, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Scottish-American champion Michael Rosenberg about loyalty, maintaining concentration and the many ways that bridge mirrors life. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you? Jocelyn, I am terrific. I have news to report from the front. Do tell. (laughs) I played with a new partner yesterday. Wow, that is definitely newsworthy. (laughs) Tell me everything. (laughs) Well, it was one of those last minute things. I have a regular partner for a game and she called me at the last minute because there was something going on and she couldn't play, but she has a very good friend who I happen to know. And this very good friend was interested to play and did I mind? La, 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 la. So it all happened very quickly. And suddenly I was playing with this person I'd never played with before. And <laughs> we've all had the history of playing with a new partner, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting ready for that first date you know, reviewing your system card, putting on your best hat, all that stuff. I didn't have time for any of that. And so she and I were able to text back and forth about a couple of agreements. And that was fine because we were essentially playing the same system that I played with my regular partner. But, you know, I just found myself feeling so nervous. And I had in my head Do you remember when we talked with Boyer Brogelin about partnerships and he said often new partnerships do really well? Yes. 
yes, everyone's on their best behavior and everyone's trying really hard to do the right thing and everyone's really, really trying to impress the other person. And, and so this was me. I was on my best behavior and I was trying very, 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 very hard. And every single thing I did was wrong. <laughs> it was oh, just, no. It was a disaster. And then I just became so self-conscious. I was so embarrassed. And so then, you know, it was just like a pull thread, one thing after another. And she was being super sweet. And, you know, between rounds, when you're playing online, you can message each other. And she's like, oh, you know, maybe you could have trumped those four losers in W. <laughs> maybe you could have done it like really sweet so oh my god I just wanted to die mortifying mortifying so you know then it's just like oh is she ever going to play with me again what's she going to say to my friend and then I'm thinking oh I hope my friend will tell her that I'm actually not too bad most of the time rah 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 nightmare well I'll just have you know you know I I paid BBO to to make you look bad because I don't want you adding more partners to your bench. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But seriously, I have not played with a new partner in probably over a year and I never get it right. There's one time in particular that a very, very nice guy asked me to play and I knew he played with, we, we had a, uh, a partner in common. So I sent him like eight pages of my notes with that partner to ask him to make sure that we were doing everything the same. And he's never let me forget that. Like the first time I played with Jocelyn, she sent me eight single-spaced pages of notes. And then a friend of his asked me to play, but he said, hell no, you're not sending me eight pages. We're filling out a convention card and that's it. I really liked this person who had asked me. He's a really nice guy and a good player. And I really wanted us to have a successful first outing so that he would want to play with me again. And it didn't occur to me that perhaps he might not appreciate being assigned homework in advance <laughs> of playing with me. But he was such a good sport. And it was useful. It's just still something that he laughs at about me. And I guess, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I hate not having these agreements fleshed out because we've talked about minor wood, for example. I play minor wood with a lot of different partners and I play it differently with every single partner. So just saying, do you play minor wood or puppet stamen or I mean, anything Drury, you can't just check a box and be done with it. So at least in my experience, <laughs> you can't, you're going to run into trouble. So yeah. In a way, that was what was good about not having had much time beforehand to set it up because we were just flying by the seat of our pants. And, you know, sometimes that's good because you revert to the most common interpretation and just relieves you of all that stress. The last time I played with a new partner it was a couple of years ago now, and we were going back and forth about system. And every exchange about our system came with this caveat from my then new partner about, and if you don't want to do this and if it's not going to work out, that's okay. And we'll just see how it goes. And, you know, and then I'd send back something else. And we did play a few games, but every single time we'd be like, you know, and if you're not feeling it, then we don't have to keep playing. 
I ended up not feeling it just because they kept going on and on and on about if I wasn't feeling it. It's only now it's dawning on me that maybe they actually wanted me to stop playing with them and that was their way to get me to do it. <laughs> yes, if you're not comfortable with, with new minor forcing, we don't have to do that. <laughs> yes, so... I have yet to hear back from my regular partner. She's so nice. She'd never tell me that her friend would say that I was a disaster. I know I was a disaster. I know I know this woman who I played with is out there listening, so I'm just going to say in front of everybody, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe you'll play with me again one day. I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. Well, do what I do and don't ever play with new partners. <laughs> I used to have to play with new partners all the time because my partners were always moving out of town. <laughs> so I got very used to going through the whole drill of getting on the same page. It's painful. Oh, it's so painful. It's so painful. It's such a joy when you settle into a couple of regular partnerships and you can start building your system. And then it has that effect where the, the more you've nestled into that lovely, cozy, deep partnership, it just throws into contrast the shortcomings of any new partnership that you might have because, you know, the gap between all that understanding and all that lack of understanding is is laid before you. Yes, very clearly. So yeah, it's, it's a mixed blessing, isn't it? It's like wonderful to have regular partnerships, but then it does make it quite hard to take on, take on someone new. Stepping away for a minute to say thank you to our friend, Larry Cohen, known for his keep it simple, sweetheart philosophy. Check out his quizzes, practice hands, and Bridge Made Simple webinars at www.larryco.com. So, Jocelyn, we've had some letters in the mailbag. Would you like me to read you a couple? You betcha. <laughs> well, you were just <laughs> speaking about new minor forcing, and we've had a letter from Phil in the Bay Area that happens to mention new minor forcing. So why don't we start with that one? He says, when my wife and I finally worked up the courage to dip our toes into the open game rather than our usual 4 er we chose a week when there was nationals, figuring it would be a weaker than usual field. <laughs> Cute strategy there, Phil. Well done. We were thrilled to achieve our goal. Second last. <laughs> <laughs> so a few weeks later, after licking our wounds, we tried again. At one of the tables, we had a bad outcome that would have been avoided if we played new minor forcing. <laughs> At the end of the round, the woman sitting north, who looked very stern and who hadn't said a word during our time at her table, blurted out, do you play new minor forcing? You must play new minor forcing. <laughs> and she took my wife's convention card and wrote new minor forcing on the interior score sheet and underlined it twice. <laughs> So I said, does this mean we can ask you questions? To which she replied, $1 per question. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed out loud, as did she, and we've been great friends ever since. Oh, I love that. It was only later that we found out that she has more than 13,000 master points and had won two national championships. <laughs> oh, that's just so great. I love this idea of a very experienced player sharing and creating that kind of goodwill and that long enduring friendship that carries on. It's just wonderful. It is. It's so nice. 
And it really builds your confidence. You know, I think if you have a person at the club or someone that has taken you under their wing, even if it's just in a gentle way or an occasional way, and you feel like, yeah, I'm on the path. I'm on the bridge path. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Well, somewhat segueing from that, I have got another letter here from Ryan from Illinois, our regular correspondent, Ryan. Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. And Ryan's written a short letter to us on the subject of confidence. At a Flight Sea Grand National Teams qualifier several years ago, one of my teammates sadly lamented that we were not going to win because he wasn't in the right frame of mind. He had recently gotten divorced and lost his job. I was very confident that we were going to win since I thought we were excellent players for Flight Sea. So I told him, I'm really sorry, beep, I'm not going to say the name, I'm really sorry, but we are going to win. And we did win, just barely, but we won. I think that's so sweet and it's, it's also just to, you know, step back and just focus on the bridge aspect of it. It's an example of how if you focus on the technique, the game somewhat transcends your current circumstances it's interesting because I tend to be very negative and I tend to expect the worst so that at least I won't be disappointed. <laughs> and I have played with partners who have a very different attitude. And I think you're probably in that other vein, which is be positive, expect to win. And that's going to give you the energy and the and the right mindset to win but i don't buy it <laughs> i think you have to pray to the gods of nervousness by <laughs> expecting the worst and so i have never really felt like i could sincerely express an optimistic <laughs> attitude going into a big tournament well it's so interesting i know what you're saying and I, I do often feel quite negative when I go in. I, I don't really expect to do very well, but I always think you're going to do brilliantly. And <laughs> so I tend to focus on that. Well, that's nice. And I actually, yes, I expect you're going to do great. I'm always just expecting myself to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. It's like you, you're trying to uh, offset that or counter it by by preparing yourself for the worst. And then it's like, oh, I did better. That's terrific. And you can feel really good about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thing about this letter that I think is so sweet is the way that it demonstrates his faith in his friend and in their partnership. And the way that Bridge is often a place where we can come together, even if something's not going great or if we, you know, even if there are huge differences in our experience or where we're at at the time, and it allows us to connect with other people, which is something that I know we all love about the game. So if you have any good stories about your first foray out with a new partner or new minor forcing, or an expert giving wonderful advice to a less experienced player and forming an ongoing friendship, and friendship in general, and confidence. Please do send them to us. You can email them, you can Instagram them, or you can leave a voice message. All the links are in the show notes and on the website, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Michael Rosenberg. 
Scottish-American champion Michael Rosenberg was born in the Bronx, but moved to Scotland when he was just seven months old. He has a string of bridge accolades, including four world championships, and was inducted into the ACBL Hall of Fame in 2015. Michael also developed and runs the junior training program for the United States Bridge Federation and has thrown himself into fundraising and recruiting champion mentors for up-and-coming junior players. We began by asking him when he first moved back from Scotland to the United States. February 1st, 1978. <laughs> was burned in your, in your memory. I was uh, actually sort of strange. Was I think the Sunday Times was going on then, which was an annual tournament. And I wasn't playing because I was flying to the US. But Tony Pridey was playing with Claude Rodrigue in that tournament. And one of them had to go to a funeral. I substituted for, for a session for the one who went. And then I flew out later that day. That seems weird to me, but if that, that's actually true. That's the way I remember it. And I flew on Laker Airways, which was a, a thing that they had then. It was 50, 57 pounds one way. And that's how, that's how I moved to the US. Why did you move? I moved to come and play bridge. I was, I, I was playing rubber bridge in London. And I'd heard in America there was all this play for pay, which I wanted to get involved in. And also there was backgammon here I liked. And I, I'd, I'd been to America a couple of years before for a tournament. I stayed in New York for 45 days or something. I really liked it. So I, I wanted to move here. But when I moved to New York, there wasn't that much play for pay on the East Coast at that time, at least not for me. So I ended up getting a job. Just to clarify, you were born in the United States, is that correct? I was born in the Bronx. Yes. And so you moved back in a sense. Right. I was seven months old when my parents went to Scotland. So do you feel like you're old Scottish or do you feel like you're American or both? Both. But I, w- I would root for Scotland always, if, it's, if it comes to Scotland against America. But What was it like switching from playing for Scotland to playing for a different country? Well, I didn't, I didn't play for America for a long time because after I moved to America, uh, I met somebody who became my ex-wife eventually. <laughs> but I, but I, I was with her for more than a decade. And during I didn't play very much bridge at that time. I didn't I didn't play for America until uh, nineteen ninety four. But it was but what it was like. It was it was obviously a much bigger deal to play for America than play for Scotland in the sense that when you play for America, you're hoping to slash expected to win. Whereas you play for Scotland, nobody's thinking you're going to win the world championship. So it was different. We won the Canrooks Trophy for Scotland. So that was nice. What are some differences between bridge in Scotland? and bridge in the U.S. in terms of the game and the culture, the community, anything. Okay, obviously much more serious in the U.S., but you would think it was more serious in Scotland from the way the people were acting. It was, it was a lot of fights, a lot of personalities, a lot of, a lot of arguments. And also in, in Scotland, I would say the focus, which is what, what I grew up with, the focus was on card play. And in America, I think focus was on bidding. So it's, it's different. So I learned, I learned a lot more about bidding after I moved to the U.S. But you said that you still identify as Scottish. I do. I can't help it. What's your favorite tournament that you love to play? The, the U.S. trials, the you know, slightly American team, is almost always the best event. Uh, there's a bunch of very good teams trying to qualify to play for the U.S. So the stakes are high. And unlike the Spingled or Vanderbilt, which is also... A strong event, the stakes are high. 
there's far fewer teams in the Spangled or Vanderbilt. There's often up to a hundred teams. So there's a lot of weak teams and the trials is very few weak teams. And, uh, it's just, it's just the most exciting thing I find. Obviously, if you qualify for the world championships, it's also exciting. But even, even then the trials is, is the one I look forward to every year. Is there a tournament that you played at that's just been particularly nice to play at, say, because of the location or the conditions of the tournament itself? I mean, I often don't know what the location is when I play in <laughs> tournaments. So like, I, I, I'm, play, I'm playing bridge, but I'm not even sure where I am. And people will say, with the, some people know where they played the Nationals like two years ago or something. I have no idea where they were like, with all these different cities. And no, I, I can't think of any particular place. So do you, do you book your flights yourself? Uh, yeah. I used to have a travel agent, but I gave that up a long time ago. So now <laughs> either Debbie or I books book the flights. Right. But, so that's so interesting to me. So you kind of treat it all almost like this external administrative thing, and then you're just going to that tournament and you're not even thinking about where it is. Right. I, I, I don't do a lot of sightseeing. The only time I ever did any sightseeing was when I won a trip to Rome. And I was there for a week and I, I didn't play any bridge or I did play one night in a club, but apart from that, I didn't play any bridge. So I, I said the sightseeing, but most of the places I go to, I'm sure a lot of people will be sickened by the fact that I don't uh, take advantage of going to look at all the stuff that's there. I just usually focus on the bridge trip. What did you win to win a trip to Rome? It was some peer game in London. I played with a guy called Barry Marshall. And did you travel with Barry? No. I think he, I think he's, he didn't use his trip. I think he sold it or something. Did you go by yourself? I went by myself. And you spent a week there wandering around. Do you remember what captured your interest? Everything. It was just, it was an amazingly beautiful place. And I'm, I'm not much for sightseeing, but that was a lot, a lot to see. I mean, Scotland itself is, of course, has beautiful scenery. If you ever go there, then just driving around is, is amazing. But this was for, for actual sightseeing, this was a special trip for me. What do you love most about Bridge? One of the things I like about it is that I feel like it mirrors life in so many different ways. That everything that is in life, there's also in bridge, there's partnership and there's instinct, there's analysis, there's concentration, focus, there's art, there's science, there's just there's, there's everything that exists in life exists in bridge. So there is that. On a more specific thing, one thing I like about bridge is that you can show a hand to experts like the best players in the world and say, can you make four spades on this deal or not? And you show them all four hands and they don't know. It can't be figured out. The game is just so intricate that it's hard to figure out even when we can see everything. And of course, since this bridge is a game of incomplete information, we usually can't see everything. So it's just a, a game with endless facets. Bridge is also so much like, because of the partnership aspect, it's, it's a bit like a marriage. You're having a conversation with your partner and, and then you have a relationship that goes on and on and on. Things often get a little heated, you'll disagree with your partner, you'll argue, you get serious, you may not talk to your partner for, for a couple of hours. So it's, it's very much like, like a marriage. Uh, when it's a new partnership, then of course, just like in life, everybody's on their best behavior and, and uh, everything always goes more smoothly. But, but when, it's, when you're a regular partnership, things don't always go so smoothly. Have you had any tensions in partnerships recently where you've had to work on them, like you might work on a marriage? Yes, but I mean, the, the most apropos thing to talk about would probably be my partnership with Zia because we played together for 18 years and that was after we'd known each other for 14 years. 
And he's he's well known as a fiery partner. Right. He's often doesn't take things that lightly when his partner does something wrong. So we had, you know, a lot of success, but the more we played together, eventually it became a little bit like we were allergic to each other. And we did end up fighting quite a lot. And after we broke up, we've always been friends. You know, so I don't think our friendship has ever changed. But at the table, we have strong opinions sometimes, or at least he does. And uh, if if I disagree, then I'll I'll make I'll make my uh, opinion known. We started playing together again a little bit, about eight years after we broke up. We played the seniors, and we won the world senior championship. But we we didn't fight as much there as we had been fighting when we were a regular partnership. So it shows that like the the space of time was changed things. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What were some of the things that you and Zia tended to disagree most vociferously about? Mostly bidding, I think. He would he would accuse me of being an underbidder very often, and maybe sometimes I was. But there were system things. I don't know. I don't remember really. What's it like to be accused of being an underbidder? Well, you you, you feel like you know you try to bid your hand accurately, and your partner says you're not bidding enough. It's like upsetting. They're saying, and they're saying, can you give us a sense of how that might have been communicated to you? Well, I can give you some stories. Yes, please. But not exactly underbidding stories. It's more like, uh, I, I remember before we played the World Peers in 2002, the, the World Peers final in 2002, he, he, he took me aside before the game, before the final. He said, you know, this is a really difficult event. Hines are difficult, whatever. We're probably going to make mistakes. Don't get upset. Whatever happens, don't get upset. I said, okay. So we're playing and we're off to a very good start. And then there's a hand where he opens two spades, week two bid, and I bid four spades. And Bart Bramley's on my left. He starts thinking. And now he bids, I'm, I'm thinking if he bids five plus, I'm going to bid five spades. I'm not quite sure. 
or should I double him? I don't, I don't know what to do. But he bids after a long foot six clubs, jumps to six clubs. He goes pass, pass to me. And I have some big hand, but with singleton club. My first thought was to double because I had a big hand. Then I analyzed what he had to bid six clubs by himself. And I figured what his likely hand take was. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe he's going to make it. I don't know if I want to double. And then I started thinking more. I said, maybe I should even save against the six clubs. So finally, after a long thought, I bid six spades as a save. And as soon as I made this six spade bid and pushed the tray through, through the screen, there was now all this gefuffle on the other side of the screen, like upset, like things were flying all over the place on the other side of the screen. He was obviously upset that I'd bid. And uh, he, had, he had King Doubleton Club over, over the, the six club bidder, which was, a, which was a trick. But it so happened that Six, six club was going to make even with that trick. I, I, my, all my cars didn't produce a defensive trick. So six spades is actually a good save. So I just thought it was funny that he was telling me not to get upset. I mean, I had done the right thing and he was getting upset with me. Did you talk about it after the game? Oh yeah, of course. Did he concede? Yeah, well, he was, he was upset because he, he, he himself, and often this is what happens to people, not just Zia, but every person, is they're not quite sure whether they're, what they're doing is right or not. And then when something happens, they're more upset than they would have been. If it's just their partner making a mistake, like they shrug their shoulders and say, I don't care. But when they're worried they, they might have done the wrong thing, they, it makes them more upset. So he, we, we play this thing called action double, where double by a preemptor says, I want you to bid more. But he wasn't sure if it applied at this level. Like he wanted to double for penalties, and he would have. And if he had, I would have passed, which as it happens would have been bad. But he wasn't sure, so he passed. And as it happens, it worked out well for us. But I think I think he was probably upset himself that he had he hadn't doubled six clubs. So I think that that contributed to his being upset with me. The stakes get increased, I guess, psychologically. You said you had another story. Well, there's a lot of great Zia stories. There, were, there was one where they went a weak no trump on my right. I passed. It went past, and Zia with three spades. And we didn't exactly have an agreement about how strong a hand that should show over a week no trump he could double for penalties so it wasn't just wasn't clear and i thought for a while about whether i should raise to four speech or not i finally decided nah i'm not going to raise i, I get it's this small speed so i passed and i put my dummy down and he said slam so he got he got very unlucky played the hand a little bit carelessly and he went down to three speeds so he thought he, he could have been missing a slam if the cards had been lying differently and game was very good, but in fact, he couldn't make game because the breaks were bad and he, he actually went down in three spades. So that was sort of funny that he's completely missing a slam, but then goes down in a par score. Now, always I could tell, tell Zia stories like, like, like this, you know, but one has to remember that I regard Zia as basically the greatest player who's ever lived. And I learned so much from him. But the stories are, are going to be funny ones where he tends not to look so good most of the time. When did you first know that you were good at bridge? Well, I was 16 years old. I hadn't played bridge yet. And my school started some course, some classes in bridge or a club in bridge. And after about six months, I felt like I was learning quite a lot. But the thing, the thing that really got me hooked on bridge forever was reading Bridge in the Menagerie and reading all the hands there and all the stuff with the Hades Hog and stuff. And the, once I learned that and understood all that, I really felt like I was starting to understand and get good. So that's when you started to feel that you had some facility with the game. Yeah. 
I mean, I got good pretty fast. I, I represented Scotland in 1972. I'd been playing for less than two years. And you were a champion chess player prior to that. Right. I was a chess player and I was felt I was stagnating at chess. I represented Scotland in the World Junior Championship and the World Students Olympiad. And I was maybe like the number four or five ranked player in Scotland at that time. But from the ages of like basically 13 to 16, I didn't feel like I was progressing much. I got a little frustrated. And then when I found Bridge, it was a relief. So you were stagnating in chess, but you've never talked about stagnating in bridge. It clearly is endlessly interesting to you. Fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Why is that? Because there's just so many facets to the game. There's always more to learn. It's not ever like routine or boring, like having to learn in chess, having to learn the opening theory and to do this, I, I always find a little bit boring. Although the truth is in bridge, I always, for the first half of my career, I didn't regard bidding as something that interesting. I always thought the bidding was something you go over with so you could go into the important thing, which was the play. But as time, time's going on, I've, I've come to appreciate that bidding can be interesting too. Do you tend to like a very complex and artificial system? No. I tend to prefer uh, natural methods as much as possible, basic methods. And I think for the promotion of bridge worldwide, it would probably be better if we didn't have all these artificial methods it might be more marketable if if there were only one or two bidding systems and fewer choices. Uh, the fact that people can do anything is interesting in itself, and, and obviously you can work on that, but to me the card play is always the thing that's the most interesting. What would your partner say is your greatest strength when it comes to bridge? They would probably say declare a play. My, my greatest strength in bridge is definitely my analysis of the game. I consider myself a better analyst than a player. But can you do that in real time at the table during the game? Sometimes I can. Sometimes you can analyze. You can go into, you can just figure out what's going to happen in a hand or, or you can just know things. You can know suit combinations. You can know from history what kind of plays work. I have a lot of theories about what's right in bridge. And often, especially in bidding, those theories are based on what I've observed rather than any logic. I'll give you an example. If you open the bidding at the one level and the overcall preemptively the three level, and it goes pass, pass to you, you may have a hand with like 18 or 19 points, too good to open a strong no trump, but you can't make a takeout double now. You have the wrong, the wrong shape. So the question is, should you bid three or trump or not now? And you're looking at the hand and saying, well, I have no tricks. I have no nothing. How am I going to make three or trump? It's never going to work. But three or trump has worked there virtually every single time. It's been, been the winning action. Pass has been a losing action. I don't know why that is. It doesn't make any sense to me, especially logically, but I know it. And when I know it's something that's always working, I make that a theory that I follow, even though I don't understand why. I was going to say, it's a theory that is derived from practice as opposed to practice, a theory and then a right. proof. <laughs> yes. And I have a lot of things like that. Yeah, there's that one, isn't there, also about the void... And bidding an extra time? Yes. How do you know about that? Research. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something I, I learned. I mean, comparatively recently, it's only a few years ago. I just noticed that people were passing out hands with a void on some competitive auction, and it was a disaster, time after time after time. So I developed a theory that if you have a void, you always bid one more. And it's worked amazingly well. I, again, I don't know why. What would you say is your greatest weakness in the game? 
I think it's just that I don't put together things the way I don't think the way that I know I'm capable of thinking. I just I just lose concentration or lose focus or have some blackout. I don't know that, but that's clearly my biggest weakness is blackouts. But do you get bored? Is that why you black out? No, no, definitely not get bored. So why then? What's your theory? You're a smart fellow. Tell us your analysis of yourself. I don't know. If I, if I knew, it wouldn't happen. Do you get nervous? I'm probably more nervous now than I am when I'm playing bridge. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit nervous when I started started tournament. Maybe you know, like the first board or but as soon as I start playing, it goes away. I don't feel nervous as soon as I start playing. So, what would be the conditions where you would lose focus? I'm playing bridge, and as those are the conditions. Yeah, but I'm gonna put I'm gonna push you on this. I mean, it happened. It happened today. I, I, I don't know how it happened. So. Would it happen if you were playing a world championship? No, I hope not. But my point then is, that, is it conditional on the situation? Is it, is it how much energy you're bringing to bear on the situation? Right. I mean, right. It might, it might be that in certain situations that I could be nervous without realizing it or like in the final of the 2007 Mutable, I played a really bad match and made three or four really bad errors. And uh, I would say that they, they were probably a result of being nervous without actually realizing it. I couldn't think things through properly. Have you taken any steps to overcome your occasional lapses? I mean, I just try to tell myself to focus. I don't have any like meditation routines, if that's what you mean. I don't, I don't have anything like that. I just try to tell myself, you know, play the sand, don't get upset, something goes wrong. Always focus on what's now, what's next. I, I tell myself the right things, and sometimes it works, but... Sometimes it doesn't. I think for a player who knows as much as I do, I just have too many blackouts. You obviously play with the elite of the elite in terms of bridge experts. When you're talking together, maybe away from the table or socially, do they express similar frustrations with their game? Not usually. <laughs> Is that just ego they wouldn't tell you? Or do you think they don't have that problem? I mean, I think everybody has it to some extent. I've never seen anybody who who I thought played bridge well all the time. There's just nobody's close to that. The game is, first of all, too hard. Even even most of the top players don't know as much as they ought to know. But uh, yeah, nobody plays this game too well, which is what my confidence is based on, actually. It's not based (laughs) on me, it's based on them. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm playing a match against somebody, even if it's a better team, I've watched them play before. I know they've made all sorts of ridiculous mistakes. So I, I know I know that I know that I can win. I expect to win. I always expect to win. You always expect to win, even though you know you have these blackouts. In my mind, I expect to win. It's what I what I mean. My my approach to the game is I'm going to win. And and until and until until the, the tournament's over, I stick with that. Very important actually also in pair games. Something is going wrong, people often get upset and they, they start, you know, doing stuff or getting upset and messing about, they shouldn't because you can never tell when you're going to get a bunch of good boards something something good's going to happen. You can always assume that what you do is going to matter. If you lose, you lose. Do you have a personal motto or catchphrase that you use when you're trying to build up your confidence, say, before a tournament? Okay, there is a phrase that's associated with me. It's not something I use to build up my confidence or anything, but it is associated with me because it's something I talk to the juniors and stressed over and over again. It's what I call knock out the ace, which is the key to me to every every hand of play 
is to knock out the ace. And knock out the ace means whatever it's like Humpty Dumpty means whatever I want it to mean. But it's a principle of how of how to play is you is you want to you want to play on suits where you set up tricks and you only give them tricks that they have already. This is the ideal suit to play also. also. Obviously, if you have King Queen 10 4 tops to Jack Third, that's an ideal suit to play. You're giving them the ace they have already. You're setting up three tricks for yourself. But knock out the ace can be just just playing a singleton cut communications. It's like can we knock can we whatever I want it to be. It is it is my catchphrase. In fact, one of one of my juniors, he got had t shirts made with knock out the ace on it. And uh he gave me one. And a lot of a lot of kids were. Do you have any superstitions or rituals that you observe about playing bridge? I mean, I don't actually have the superstitions, but I notice things and sometimes do or don't do things based on superstition, you you might say. But I'm not going to talk about what they are. Oh, that's fair <laughs> enough. Okay, no problem at all. That's absolutely fine. Michael, one of the things that developing players, I think, have the most trouble with, and I'm speaking for a friend here, is the need to visualize where all the cards are in the unseen hands. And first of all, figuring out the pattern, figuring out where the high cards are, and retaining that information, that's really challenging to some of us. Do you have a particular system for visualizing the unseen hands and keeping track? Or is it just something that came so naturally to you when you were just starting out and it's never been something that you've deliberately set about trying to attain a better facility with? Right. It's a really good question. A very important thing is to not have tunnel vision. People will see something about a suit and they'll know what that will think this thing about a suit, but you, you cannot have just a suit in mind. You have to always have a whole hand in mind. So it's very important that any play you make can work. There's some 52 card distribution where this play you're making can succeed. So it's important to, to try and visualize the whole hand. And the way I, the way I like to do it is as I would read a, read a hand in a magazine or a book is I see the hand diagram. I just see this, try and see the same hand diagram in my head. Now, sometimes I fail and I, and I don't, don't do that. And I, I think, think about a suit and forget to count to 13 because people should always remember that everybody has 13 cards and every card, every suit has 13 cards. So those, those two things together, you'll go to make sure that your, your plays are consistent with that. And when you say diagram, do you mean like in the bridge column? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so as the hand is being played, do you start mentally blacking out each of the cards in that diagram or putting a line through them? Or how do you start to organize it as the hand develops? Right. Well, let's say you're declaring the hand. You can only see to start your hand in dummy and the lead. So their hands are, are blank, as they often are in a, in a magazine. Like, we'll just show the, the south and north hands. And as, as they play the card, you start filling it in. But you, you've got to remember... They have to have 13 cards and the East has to have 13 cards. This is what you've always got to go back to. It comes mostly second nature for experts. It's not too hard usually. But even, even they occasionally and me occasionally, they'll think something about a suit and forget that it's impossible because of the length. But it looked, it looked like something was a certain way, but actually it wasn't. Are there any defense agreements that you particularly like? Yeah, I guess I, I, I like to play... Most people play 
unspecified Michaels, for example. And I like to play an overcalling structure where you show specifically what suits you have always so that if you make a two-suited bid, that uh, partner knows immediately what the two suits are. Because I find that the biggest disasters in bridge are usually caused because we we don't find the fit. We have like a 6-5 fit, but it never gets uncovered. Because I showed parts in a minor and my partner had six clubs, so he didn't want to compete because he thought my minor was diamonds, but we had this huge club fit and we never, we never got, to, got to show it. So I, I like, there's a lot of structures that allow uh, you to show all the suits right away. Guess them as one. When I played with Chris Willenkin, we had our own structure, but I, de- I definitely liked, liked doing that. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you like to play? Not really, no. Just whatever it is that, that works in the situation. I, I don't have any special rules about any, any particular convention. What about conventions that you think might be a waste of time? I mean, they usually have some purpose. Uh, there's many conventions, I think, that are overrated. Uh, for example, I think the, the convention that's most overrated, strangely enough, is Stamen. Even though I play it and it has, it's necessarily not a waste of time, it has use. But if you just think about it over your life, when you bid Stamen, most of the time you find out the partner has no major or has the other major. Or you find a overfit, but that may not even always be the right contract. So there's so many ways that Stamen can work against you and you're giving information to the opponents when you use Stamen. So I think that's, of all the basic conventions, that's the one that's clearly the most overrated. Well, what would you do without it? You would guess. <laughs> <laughs> you would make forcing bids. I don't know. What did, what did they do before, uh, before Stamen existed? I don't know. They did something. Yeah, the balance handy probably just stayed in no trump. If they had a suit, they, they would jump in a suit. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm not saying I'd want to do without statement. I wouldn't. But t- it just tends to often be useless. If I'm playing match points, I'll often not use statement on a hand just because I think, you know, I can get to no trump and, and, and maybe maybe score higher or maybe we'll get a friendly lead because we didn't give away the information. People are now using puppet statement a lot more often, so they don't have to reveal that opener has a four-card major. That's an improvement especially if it's Tudor Trump puppet stem. One thing I think is not a good idea is to have too much science when it comes to game auctions. So people play, for example, after one heart pass, two hearts pass, they have all these conventions of how to show shortness or length or whatever, or a partner can reject this thing, that thing, and they have all these scientific auctions to try and get to the best contract. And to me, for game auctions, it's just not worth it. You just want to try and bid a game and have them find the right lead. You want to have auctions that are unrevealing so as not to help the opponents both on the lead and the subsequent defense. So to me, my idea of a good auction to a game is one heart, pass two hearts, pass three hearts, pass four hearts, or one no trump, pass three no trump. <laughs> at, the end of, at the end of the auction, every single thing you've told the opponents is now hurting you. So you want to have unrevealing auctions to game, I think. Whereas for slam, I believe the opposite. For slam, because it's so precise, you can only afford to lose one trick. You, you, want, you want to get it exactly right, so you want to have, have the, the maximum communication. What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given? I would say it's that when you're playing, always have a picture of the whole hand in your mind so that whatever you do is consistent with that picture. If somebody played a card, we know they have that card. Sometimes we infer they have cards. We don't know, but always have the picture in your mind 
of what they have or might have and make sure that what you're playing for makes sense. That's great. Michael, it was terrific talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That was really great. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Michael Rosenberg. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Thanks also to our friend, Larry Cohen. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. These links and a link to our merch store are in the show notes and on the website, along with some other good stuff. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Michael says, when you're playing, always have a picture of the whole hand in mind so that whatever you do is consistent with that picture. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.